This is episode 21 with Dr. Paul Batty, CEO and founder at Swingo. Welcome to Asian Tech Leaders. My name is Justin Peng, and each week we share insights from Asian tech leaders to help inspire and guide you to reach your full potential. Thanks for spending some time with me today, and let's get started. Dr. Paul Batty is the CEO and founder of Sewingo, a cloud-based e-commerce and inventory management solution for dentists. Founded in 2012, Sewingo's mission is to transform healthcare through helping dentists more efficiently run their practices and improve patient outcomes. The company helps save dentists time and money through its inventory management software and robust e-commerce marketplace that carries over 50,000 products. In addition to running Sewingo, Dr. Batty is an oral and maxillofacial surgeon with over 15 years of experience in the United States and Canada. In this episode, you'll learn about Dr. Batty's beginnings as an ESL student in Canada, how his father shaped his desire to work in healthcare, and how to think about risk differently to make life decisions. Hope you enjoy this episode, and let's get started. Hi, Paul. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, how are you, Justin? Thanks for having me today. Doing good, doing good. Really excited to have you on. Um, you know, I've been following you and uh, your work at Swingo for the last couple of years. So excited to uh, have everybody hear your story. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me today. I really appreciate it. And uh, hopefully this story, you know, it's kind of, uh, um, I'm lucky with some of the success that I've had. And uh, thank you for asking me to share it with, uh, with everyone. Yeah, excited to dive into it. Um, so I was hoping maybe we could start with a little bit about your personal background. So share with listeners where you're from and what your childhood looked like. Um, I was born in India. So I came to Canada when I was about six and a half. I didn't know a whole lot uh, of English at that point. Actually, the only word I really knew was Coke. And um, <laughs> because even back in 1975 in India, you could get Coca-Cola. It was kind of a real kind of treat. Mm. And I still remember taking the flight over and, uh, you know, I, the stewardesses would come by and ask me something. And I would just say Coke. And all of a sudden they'd bring me this beautiful glass of Coca-Cola. <laughs> so I had a lot of those on my way to Canada. And uh, so I landed in 1975, uh, went to public school here, did have to go through ESL, of course, because my language skills were so deficient. And, uh, and then slowly kind of, so I lost a grade through that process and then kind of went, uh, uh, grew up in Canada, went through all of uh, the junior school, middle school, and high school uh, here in uh, Etobicoke. I went to Kipling Collegiate here in Canada, and then I went to University of Toronto for undergrad. And then I actually moved to the United States. Um, and I am a U.S. citizen as well as a Canadian citizen now. And I uh, lived in the U.S. there for 17 years and uh, was lucky enough to live in Chicago and uh, Michigan. Wow. Where is the weather better in the winter? Um, Michigan, Chicago? Toronto, do you have a preference? <laughs> you know, uh, it, it's interesting. If you ask me, the biggest change in weather that I've seen hasn't really been so much between the cities, but over time, like in the 70s, mm. when I grew up, there was snow just everywhere. And, uh, you know, my parents would be out there shoveling the snow like four times a day. Wow. And uh, now there just seems like there's so much less snow. But the weather uh, between the cities is, is fairly close. I mean, Chicago uh, has a lot of wind. Uh, 
hence the Windy City. Mm-hmm. And it can be extremely cold in the winter, especially I lived right in downtown where the tall buildings were. So, you know, you'd have tons and tons of, of wind going through there. There were wind channels. And then um, in terms of snow, they didn't quite has, have as much snow. And then um, and Michigan was very similar to Chicago. So I'd say between mm-hmm. all three cities, it's very, very close. I mean, nothing like California. My brother yeah. lives in California, and that has amazing <laughs> weather no matter where you go. So, um, no, the cities are pretty close. Yeah, yeah. Well, the cold will- weather builds character, and, um, you know, <laughs> look how productive you are. So I feel like it also breeds productivity and uh, entrepreneurship. So um, well, great to hear that you're happy in, happy in Canada. Absolutely. Love it up here. Love it. <laughs> and um, kind of going back to your, your childhood, what 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 type of influence did your parents have on you in terms of what you did with your time and studies when you were younger? You know, I was the, uh, I'm the youngest of six children in my family. And um, so my brothers and sisters um, and my next oldest sibling is 10 years older than I am. So they, they, I think they had it much tougher than I did because they got caught in the middle. You know, they wind up having to go to high school when they first started and English again was not their native language either. And um, so growing up, I was lucky enough to pick up the language pretty quick. You know, I was at that six and a half year age mark. And um, I was the first one educated in North America. And Mm. my biggest influence for sure has been my father. Uh, My father was quite old, um, much older uh, uh, when he had me. And as a result, he didn't uh, work, but he would wake up every morning and, you know, we, he, we'd talk before I'd go to school. When I came home, we'd talk. Um, and my mother was busy with the other children. So it's not like I never felt neglected and she was around as well. But my dad always said, you know, get an education. So many doors will open for you. And he had only a grade three education and my mother only had a grade one education, but he traveled a lot and he learned a lot. And he was very, very street smart. And he realized that getting an education was really the thing that kind of helped open a lot of doors. And certainly there are people that don't get a lot of education that do fantastic as well. So it's not the only route, but it certainly, I think, increases your chances if if you get a great education. So I attribute my educational success and a lot of the things that I've done really to my father, who was a great inspiration to me. Mm. And then in terms of actually what topics and subjects gravitated, um, you gravitated towards, were there specific uh, areas that you're really keen on studying more so than others when you were younger? You know, I, I don't know if this is true of a lot of Indian children, but uh, I, I, I think it might be. But I see uh, I was gravitated towards the math and the sciences. Mm. And so, you know, I, I still love doing numbers in my head. I know how crazy that sounds, but um, I, uh, I do calculations all the time. Anytime we're talking about a deal or all kinds of other things that happen in daily life. And I'm trying to instill this in my children and it's not working quite that well. But uh <laughs> So I went to undergrad and I I took a lot of math classes and uh, I majored in human physiology, which was, uh, you know, healthcare was a a big thing to my father and he kind Mm. of encouraged me to pursue the career. And, uh, and so I did, and uh, I'm still very happy with that decision. And, uh, and it's, it's given me a lot of things in life that uh, I think are important. Mm. So you studied human physiology at U of T and was the intent to actually go down um, uh, the route of being a doctor or or were you also just kind of using that time to explore? Okay. Yeah, I I, I felt like I had a pretty good idea of what I wanted to do at a fairly young age. 
And so uh, the big difference was that uh, my brother, who was a pediatrician in California, kind of sponsored my parents and I. And that's what led us to move down to the United States. So mm-hmm. I went to dental school at Northwestern. And then I, I really enjoyed dental school and didn't want to kind of stop there. So I did a uh, specialty in oral and maxillofacial surgery, which included me going to medical school and uh, getting my medical license in Michigan. So I, um, and, and I loved all that education. You know, if someone offered me a whole lot of money and said, you know, we're going to take away your education, I'd say, no, keep the money. I, I, I wouldn't change that for the world. Mm. So you, you knew at an early age that you want to go down this route. Um, you know, I find that so admirable and, and um, inspiring because when I was in university, I had no idea what I wanted to do. So the, <laughs> the idea of actually committing, you know, four, six, eight years in education towards one path was something yeah. that, um, you know, obviously you went down the route of. So uh, great that, that you knew pretty early on what direction you wanted to go. Yeah, it took away a lot of ambiguity. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I knew exactly which classes. I, and again, I, w- I just felt lucky. And I think my father had a lot of influence in that. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm really happy for the guidance that he gave me, but uh, it did make undergrad easier. You know, I, I did, you know, sometimes enviously look at my friends that were taking business and going, God, it'd be great to know all that business stuff. And, uh, and so it does give you a little bit of a kind of skewed perspective on education, but I picked up a lot of things since then, <laughs> starting uh, this software company and, and some of the practices I have. So I, I've been fortunate enough that I did do have the business experience now, but I, I, I kind of saw my friends and they always had more fun, it seemed like, in those, in those e-commerce classes and those BCom classes. <laughs> <laughs> so share, share a little bit more about your journey after you finish uh, your MD and uh, Doctor of Dental Surgery. What did you end up doing after that? I, um, I quickly realized that I, I wanted to do my own thing, which is a little bit unusual because typically when most people graduate and in healthcare, there's not a lot of education when it comes to how to run a business, start a business, how to market a business, the accounting, the HR, all of that stuff. But it kind of intrigued me. And I think I realized very quickly that I had a very entrepreneurial spirit. So I never worked for anybody. I just went out, started my own practice, really had no idea what I was doing. I took an old uh, otolaryngology and ENT clinic and uh, kind of retrofitted it for an oral and mm. maxillofacial surgery clinic. And uh, took out a business loan. And uh, the bank, of course, would give me no money because they're like, you're a new graduate. You have no <laughs> cash. So I had to get somebody to co-sign my loans. And I had a, a good friend at that time who, uh, who did that for me. And uh, then kind of started my first practice. And I was very, very lucky because it took off relatively quickly. And uh, I was very, very fortunate. Um, But one of the things I said, you know, I I made mistakes too. I learned a lot about hiring for sure. So, so don't let me kind of fool you. And that was everything I, I kind of started with that practice worked because there was a lot of things that didn't, but um, it was great. It was trial and error. You had to learn. There was nobody else to kind of guide you. You just kind of won it. and, 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 you know, you, you try to figure out what, what works, what doesn't work. And I think for me, it was a great experience to go through that. And I still remember that opening my first practice and, and all the things that I learned through that process. Wow. So you never, valuable. you technically haven't worked for somebody else, right? Have you always been your boss uh, since the beginning of your career? 
Pretty much. I moved yeah. back to Canada in 2010. Mm-hmm. Uh, my father was not feeling very well. So I said, you know what? Um, I really wanted to spend time with my, uh, and my parents had moved back. They, they didn't want to live in the U.S. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they, they came back to Canada. And uh, a lot more ethnic diversity up here uh, in certain regions more than others. But um, so they had friends and all kinds of other people that they were close to. So they moved back. And then I moved back here and then I did work for somebody for a very short period of time, but then quickly realized, uh, you know, I like being, having my own business. I like having the control of that and the autonomy to control my schedule. And the people I worked with were amazing, incredible mm. people. Mm. And, uh, and so that was a good learning experience too. So uh, I think they both have their pros and cons. I think me and my personality, I think I just like being my own boss. <laughs> yeah. And you knew that early on, and I, it sounds like intuitively you just knew it wasn't sustainable for you to work for somebody else too long, right? Yeah, which was the complete opposite of my wife, because <laughs> my wife said, as soon as I graduated, she's like, there was a couple of groups that had offered me jobs, and they were good jobs. Um, and uh, she said, you know, it's safe, it's secure, go out and just, you know, take that job. We don't have to worry about anything. There's no loans we have to take. Yeah. There's no risk of whether the practice will work or how long it'll take. And I kind of threw all that out the window and said, yeah, it's all right. It'll work out. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, and I went for it. So uh, I kind of knew, uh, but my wife has kind of the opposite personality. And I think at this point, it's funny, we were having a conversation and she said, you know, I, I really don't tell you anything about what you should do or, or what might work better. <laughs> She's like, you're just going to do your own thing anyways. And so even my wife has realized that it's difficult to kind of, uh, um, I don't know, predict or sometimes even dictate what the crazy things I do. So I give her a lot of credit. <laughs> <laughs> and when you opened your first practice and like took out these business loans, what was happening in your personal life at the time? Did you have kids or um, were you married at the time? Share a little bit more we- about what was happening. Uh, I was married, um, and we had just been married uh, two, three years at that time. I had just graduated. I had a hell of a lot of debt because, unfortunately, being a new immigrant family, you know, we didn't have much money. So all the education that I pretty much got was based on student loans. Mm -hmm. And that's why it was so difficult to get a loan in the beginning. But we were married, and my wife was also in school at the time, and she's a dentist and now specialist in dentistry. And... um, so we lived in a very tiny apartment and I said, you know, if you're ever going to take a risk, I'd rather take a risk much younger in life rather than mm-hmm. later in life. You know, yeah. I don't want to do it when I'm 65, although, you know, there's nothing wrong with that either. So I don't want to critique that, but just for me, it just made sense. Like I'm here starting fresh career. Let's go take a risk. Why not? Hmm. That's great. And I'm sure you've seen as time has progressed, as you've grown your family, as you have more responsibilities, um, that prediction probably came out to be true in terms of your risk tolerance, right? Oh, yes. Yes. I mean, I don't know. In certain ways, my wife would say I'm more (laughs) riskier today because the numbers are just so much bigger. Yeah. You know, so one thing that does change with time is, of course, as you start to become more successful, your endeavors wind up being larger. So in a way, they they could be more riskier now. But I think, um, you know, back then, uh, it was a real risk just to kind of do something that not a lot of people did. And, Mm. And we didn't, again, we didn't have children at that point. So I just said, you know what, 
let's try it now and, and see what happens. Right. And it must have been so fascinating at the time because, like you said, you you were saddled with student debt and you decided to take out more debt to kind of bet on yourself <laughs> in the business. Like, how how would you advise um, people to think about risk when it comes to, oh, should I take, especially Asians, you know, where I think, you know, fiscal conservatism is, is much more normal. Like, you know, take the safe job, pay off your debt, and then, okay, maybe after you pay off your debt, you could do something more... Um, risk-friendly. Um, and any thoughts or advice on on how you think people should be thinking about financial risk, especially if they're just finishing, let's say, school, graduate school, and have to choose between the safer, sure thing of like a corporate job versus um, starting their own thing? You know, I think it, you know, you're always taking risks, whether you realize it or not, whether you're mm. crossing the street or whether it's financial risks or, um, you know, life is full of risks. Mm. And I think w what you need to do is to say, you know, based on your calculations, how much of a risk is this? So even though I didn't have any experience kind of running a practice and I take on more debt, you know, most oral and maxillofacial surgeons are relatively successful and there's a lot of job security and it's, it's an almost a recession proof kind of career. So I knew at some point it was going to work. You know, the question is, is it going to work in year one or is it going to work in year seven? Right. So if you lose that time, that's the real risk there. So for anybody who's, you know, trying to decide between should I take a corporate job or should I go try to do something on their own? You know, you got to factor all kinds of things like what's what's the reward out of this? You know, my upside was far greater by running my own practice rather than just going to work for somebody for a number of years. Um, I knew at some point that in this risk, I had what I what I was doing in my office would really determine how successful I would be. So if I wanted great surgical outcomes and really organized my office, that if patients really felt amazing when they left our office, they would refer other people, it would lead to more success. So, you know, I was betting on myself. And mm -hmm. I think uh, anytime you do a calculation, it just doesn't come to financial it's it's how much you know trust do you have in yourself do you believe in yourself um so uh, and and what's the upside of taking that risk you know if the gain is so small yeah maybe you want the corporate job but if the upside is substantial then it might be worthwhile it's all calculated and it's all mm -hmm. dependent on what your risk tolerance is and what you feel comfortable with but and and personality is different and i am a risk taker that's for sure uh as my wife will tell you <laughs> That's great <laughs> advice. Um, how did becoming a father change the way that you thought about risk, whether it's both in your, your personal life or in your professional life? Um, I, so I started a software company in 2012 called Swingo and, um, uh, and our daughter was uh, born uh, at the, about six months before that. And I actually named the company after her. It's, uh, it's my daughter, Sophia. And I took the two positive words, win and go, with mm -hmm. her first two initials. And that's how I came up with uh, the, the name Swingo. And um, I knew after I, I'd worked fairly hard um, since I graduated in 2002. So I did have 10 years of, of work experience behind me. I'd put some money together. So I, I always never tried to kind of risk with certain assets that I had gained. It, just knowing that 
I would never want to jeopardize anything for her. Mm-hmm. So, and, and, and my future children too. So there's always a little bit that I put away for them and whatever I risk, I always look at it as, well, this is money. I'm risking my own money, but they've mm. got their money just in case something <laughs> really wrong happens. So yeah. um, I always try to factor them into the equation. It's not one or the other. And, um, and I think as long as you're, you know, these, we decided to have these children, they're our responsibility. So I have to take care of them, you know, along with my wife. And we always have to make sure there's some security there. But you know, we're lucky enough to have a, a great income where there is financial resources that we can then take risks with. And we, we're we not sitting at a blackjack table, although I love blackjack. Um, <laughs> we're not sitting at a blackjack table and going, hey, you know, we got a little extra cash. Let's go to the casino. It's more about, hey, here's a calculated rich risk that could generate a lot of return. Are we going to have fun doing it? Is it going to be... Um, helpful in some way to our future you know is there some benefit here for our children and then you kind of again calculate all of those and see if if it makes sense for you Hmm. that's a great way to think about it um and kind of like shifting gears to swingo which you mentioned which is a dental inventory management software talk a little bit more about um the problem it is solving and um, how you came up with the initial idea so um I graduated in 2002, started my first practice. And again, when I started that practice, I learned a lot about HR and all kinds of other things. And I realized managing supplies was also difficult. Hmm. So I did it that way for seven, eight years while I was in Michigan. When I moved to Canada, I started again my own practice here. And I said, and one day I I had Excel sheets and, you know, tried to make it a little bit more modern. And surprisingly, most dental practices, and I'm sure medical practices as well, are doing this in a uh, paper-based format. And if they're sophisticated, they think they're doing it on Excel, and um, which I thought I was sophisticated. And I showed up one day in 2012 in the summer and didn't have some supplies that I really needed to see patients. So I said, you know, I, I really got to bring in a software to solve this problem. And then I didn't find one. And as a result, I said, you know what? I've been thinking about this issue since I first started my first practice mm. in 2002. Yeah. And I said, okay, I'm going to try to solve it. So I hired one, one person and then led to another, but it's an inventory management platform to manage any supplies from any manufacturer. And then uh, secondarily to that, we decided to launch an e-commerce portal because it makes sense if you want to manage supplies that you can buy them as well. Mm. And uh, it's led to a whole host of other things. And we've been fortunate enough now that even in this year of COVID, um, online purchasing is dramatically increasing. Um, and customers are more aware and obviously Amazon has changed everything. So our e-commerce portal, you know, we, we've got more than 50% of the dental practices in Canada now registered with our platform. So it's grown significantly. And this little idea, it's, it's funny because we have offices in Hong Kong and Australia and Hawaii and Ireland using our software now. And, uh, it's kind of neat how a little idea kind of now is is being used by you know offices in various locations so uh again uh that's that's swingo in a nutshell amazing and congratulations on all the success and it it seems like um swingo has also launched a marketplace in us is that correct 
Yes. So as of actually about a week ago, we have now with two suppliers, Medline Industries and another company called DDS Supplies, and we have more coming shortly. Um, we are now in the U.S. marketplace. We have U.S. offices uh, purchasing. I just saw an order from from Florida that just came in through a couple minutes ago. So it's uh, it's interesting how, again, a little idea can kind of spread into something bigger. But um, it was a real struggle to get this off the ground. So mm -hmm. I don't want to make anybody out there who has ideas, I, I don't want to make them think that they're going to be an overnight success because it requires a lot of hard work. And we struggled for a number of years uh, before we got to this point, but we hung in there. And I, again, I believed in the idea. I believed in myself. I have an amazing team around me. They're way smarter than I'll ever be. And uh, so I think, you know, you got to stick it out and you got to work as hard as you can um, to, to really get to success. But it feels even better when you work that hard. Yeah. yeah and like you said, it's been um, over eight years. Just wondering if you could share a couple of the um, early roadblocks that you faced and uh, what, what kind of turn the tide eventually on, on clearing some of those issues? Um, for us, you know, it's funny when I started this, um, there's supplies are not sold by a whole number of uh, suppliers in the mm -hmm. dental market. And uh, I think a lot of them kind of looked at me and said, uh, you know, what the hell are you doing? You're an oral surgeon, <laughs> just go back to your practice. In fact, I had a, I'll never forget, I had a conversation with one of the suppliers and we had a two hour lunch and uh, basically for the entire two hours, he talked and, um, and told me that, you know, this is never going to work. You know, uh, people who kind of practice like dentistry or medicine should stick to what they do. They're not entrepreneurs. And, and I'll, I'll never forget that conversation. Hmm. And never will for the rest of my life. So the initial roadblocks were a lot of people, were, when, you, when you try to change something or you introduce something new, there's always resistance. And, and you know, I've been very fortunate. Um, you know, I, I've been lucky to have lots of friends and lots of positivity around you. And when people start all of a sudden saying, nah, not going to work or this is terrible, you know, go back to doing what you're doing, you know, what the hell do you think you're doing up, you know, with this company, you know, you're not going to change anything. For me, that was kind of like, whoa, okay. And you can take that kind of negativity in two ways. You can either decide to, you know, crumble and fold, or you can say, no, it motivates me even more. And that's what mm. it did for me. And uh, so we had a lot of roadblocks in the beginning, but again, persistence, I think has paid off and uh, lots of hard work. That's great. Um, and specifically on the, on the point of suppliers. So like you mentioned, there's just a handful of uh, suppliers in, in each market. How have they responded um, to your new platform? Because in some ways it, it is really disrupting the way their, their old way of doing business, probably eating to, into some of their margins as well. Um, but could you share a little bit more about how the reaction from the incumbents has been? Yeah, I think the reaction initially was very negative because again, you are disrupting their normal supply channels and the way they've been operating for a while. Yeah. And I think the online market is doing that to not just our industry, but a number of industries out there. And, mm -hmm. uh, and now the response is a lot more receptive to see if there's a collaborative way to work together. Um, because again, I think technology is penetrating different markets, 
it's penetrating every market, but different markets at different rates. And I think healthcare has been slow to adopt technology. And, um, and I think the response now is, is to say, how can this technology help us or help us grow? Um, so instead of something that's confrontational, it's becoming the conversations a lot more about collaboration. Mm-hmm. That's great. Um, and kind of shifting gears towards more about like the people aspect of, of leading a startup. Can you share a little bit more about um, your early team and uh, what skills you're looking for to build the marketplace when, when you first had the idea? When we first started this, you know, I, again, I really had absolutely no idea how I would even think about engineering this. All I had mm-hmm. was ideas. And I yeah. think the biggest challenge that came for me was to, um, to understand how software is developed, how software works, and how to build that team. And I struggled with that for a number Oh, hey, Paul, I can hear you now. Okay, Uh, there's an emergency alert here. Oh, yeah, I saw that, yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, So, uh, you want me to start again? Uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, you're you're saying how you were um, trying to figure out how to develop software, and that was one of the biggest challenges early on. Yeah, and and again, being in healthcare without a lot of technology, we didn't have a whole lot of education or material that I could kind of look back on. So I uh, approached uh, some people from Waterloo. I talked to some of my nephews and nieces and just kind of started to learn a little bit more about what's involved. Mm -hmm. So I took the ideas in my brain and kind of started jotting them down on paper. And then slowly we hired one engineer. And a lot of those engineers that I first hired, I, I really did not know whether they were good or bad. And unfortunately, a lot of them turned out to be bad. <laughs> <laughs> and it took me a number of years to really build the core engineering team where we knew what we were doing. And once we did that, that's when we started to get really good. Right, just to let you know that I did try to build this software with an outside company first that mm-hmm. would uh, basically like a contract job. Yeah. And that turned out to be a complete disaster because your ideas are constantly evolving and changing. And unless you have your own team, it's so hard to do that with some type of contract job mm. uh, with somebody. You need your own team. And, and I learned that after the first year and a half. And so we scrapped everything we had done in the first year and a half and kind of then started to build the team. And like I said, wow. the initial team was, was, was not very good. Um, we were lucky enough to get one good engineer and then we kind of built around that one engineer for a number of years till we got a great team. Right. So at the beginning you started with uh, contractors and just ping based on how much time they spent on the project. And then eventually you, you actually had payroll. Um, oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. How, how scary of that is, of a shift was that for you? Because you go from kind of renting time to actually, you know, being responsible for putting food on the table for your team. Yeah. Um, <laughs> where, where was your, where was your, um, where was the product at, at the time? And did you have confidence that this was going to be a thing or were you also kind of just um, early stages of development and, and trying to, to find product market fit still? Yeah, we were still trying to find product market fit. And again, I think we were well ahead 
of our time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when you introduce dental practices to the concept of, hey, you should manage your supplies, a lot of them are like, no, we do it with pen and paper and it works just great. But the landscape has, you know, back then, even Amazon wasn't as big as it is now. So they're like, no, we don't order online. We just ask our rep and they order a bunch of stuff for us. Yeah. So, you know, so many things needed to kind of evolve and change for us to grow. And it's a scary time because you have payroll, you're investing money, you're working. And I was actually working at the oral surgery practices to kind of pay for this stuff in, yeah. in the early years. And then all of a sudden, you know, then you start to get success, then you start feeling comfortable, but it's scary. You know, you're thinking, well, this could all be a waste if this doesn't go through. And there's no guarantee that you have that you're going to be have this kind of success. Um, given where we are now today, it's fantastic. Yeah. But you know, those were very scary years. And it was a number of years. And then on top of it, people telling you, yeah, you really shouldn't be doing this. You know, you mm-hmm. start it's very, it's, it's easy to get discouraged. And this is where, again, you, you know, when you talk about taking risk or not taking risk, you really got to believe in yourself and what you're doing. And uh, do you take that negativity and, and can you turn it into a positive and get more energized and say, okay, you know, and pivoting is really, really important. Anytime you do a startup or anything like your, your vision from day one to, you know, a year down the road is going to look different. And, uh, and we've pivoted a number of times in terms of what we're doing. And, and that's important to have that flexibility and, and keep your mind open to ideas. Mm. So was the initial idea, I mean, how much of the initial idea was rooted in kind of the inventory management and marketplace piece um, versus what, what ended up changing? I think 75%. But, you know, what really happened that worked well for us is, is that you you really have to market a lot to go get customers in any yeah. business. Yeah. But what I did that was different was I partnered with associations that were looking mm. to gain benefits for their members. And that has proved to be invaluable mm. because, you know, it, it we spend very little on marketing because of the fact that we have um, core associations that are supporting the product, looking to help their members. And uh, so that for us, I think, was the key kind of turning point in in our company's history. And um, and that was kind of new and novel. Mm. Um, And I think that was kind of the game changer for us. And before that, you were going straight to the um, the surgeons or the dentists. Right. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And we're partnered with six out of the 10 provincial associations we Mm -hmm. have. We're partnered with Massachusetts, the American Association of Oral Surgeons, American Association of Periodontics. So we have North American partners now, and we're working on some international partnerships as well. So it's, uh, again, I think that was a pivot, right? So, and it turned out to be a good pivot, and it came at a great time because even COVID has seen a massive uh, uptake in our company's adoption and, uh, um, and growth. So... Uh, it's been fantastic. It's amazing. I mean, it's a multi-sided uh, market, right? Which is like very hard to to help grow at the same time because it's kind of the uh, chicken and egg problem. But it's yes. great that you guys have been able to do that. Exactly. Nobody wanted to talk to you when you don't have any users. <laughs> exactly. You know, you get a lot of users and everyone's yeah. like, hey, this is interesting. <laughs> yeah. You're yeah. absolutely right. Absolutely yeah. right. And could you talk about how you balance your time between, you know, owning and managing your own practice and then also 
uh, starting and growing Sewingo. How did how did you split your time and energy on top of being a a father and a husband? Um, I don't have a lot of friends, <laughs> <laughs> so I I I split my time in in three major ways, um, and and it's it's a balancing act, and I probably work way more. Uh, then I see my friends working, <laughs> you know, they're, all, they're doing lots of other fun activities. And, um, but having said that, I, I try to stay very, very active. And I think health is probably the most important thing. It's hard to do anything, you know, uh, really, really well without your health. So right. I, I, number one thing is, is I always try to stay active, which has been a little bit harder with gyms closing and COVID and all that stuff this year. But I balance my time. I spend uh, a third of my time in the practices. Um, I spend a third of my time at Swingo and I have a great team of employees that kind of do a lot of the work and then any free time, the rest of the third or any other free time I have, it's, it's with my, with my children and my family. And, uh, I think that connection is extremely important that no matter how successful you are at anything else, it was important for me that I keep that relationship with my family and my kids. And, um, and because, uh, again, a large part of what I'm doing is really for them. It's not even for yeah. me. And uh, so I think that probably trumps everything. And then, mm. you know, after I've been practicing now for 18 years, coming up on 19 now, I think I've started the 19th year now. Um, there's a lot of things in surgery I've done and I enjoy it still. Um, Swingo is great. It kind of stimulates my mind. I'm working on different things. And then at home, it's just crazy time with the kids and playing. So that's, that's the balance. <laughs> and, may, and maybe a pandemic puppy, as we mentioned before. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. We might be getting a dog. And I don't know how I'm going to balance that in the equation. Because I know my, started... kids my kids aren't going to walk it. <laughs> yeah. Have you guys even started to think about the breeds or you haven't gotten to that level of detail yet? <laughs> you know, my wife's Italian. She has the breed figured down. Yeah. Uh, she's <laughs> looking for, I think it's called the Bijou. Uh, Bijou Frison and uh, <laughs> she is um, my being Italian she hates the house has to be immaculate all the time <laughs> and uh, and I'm sure that's true of other cultures too but she doesn't want a whole lot of hair and this breed does not shed hair and I've seen these dogs so I think that's the only one she would ever settle on okay. so I think we yeah. have it narrowed down yeah <laughs> Good luck with that that decision. Um, and I'm sure, you know, you're outnumbered at, at home with your three girls wanting a dog. Absolutely. So, yeah. Absolutely. Um, and just a couple more questions before you wrap up is, sure. you know, we have a lot of um, listeners who are either um, still in school or early in their career. What advice would you give to somebody still trying to figure out what they want to do with their career and, and work? I think anytime you're in school, obviously try to do the best you can before you leave, because I think having great grades, getting a great edu educational experience, um, I think can open up a lot of doors for you. Then from there, I think you really got to surround yourself or meet people that you think are interesting or might be successful or, or might be doing something that, that interests you. And I think the more people you talk to and the more people you see and the more experiences that you gain through that, it will really help guide what you want to do. And um, I mean, sitting in a room trying to think of the best thing to do is, is, is good, 
But going out to meet people and talking to people and networking and all of those things, are, I think, are fantastic because that's how you learn and grow. And uh, so my advice is, is that, you know, go out and meet successful people and it'll give you a much better idea as to what you want to do and will help uh, guide a plan for you. Um, and so that would be my advice. Great. Um, and any money advice that you would give to younger listeners? So let's say, you know, obviously it, it, it depends on everybody's situation, but um, how important do you think money should be when one is pretty earlier in their career or even still in school? You know, I think the concept of saving money is always important. I wish I would have saved more of it even when I was younger um, because it does make your life easier. But, you know, saving isn't everything either. I, I think you have to live, you have to experience, and you have to take risks. You know, nobody did something great without taking a risk. Uh, at some point. Mm -hmm. uh, so y I think you save a little bit of money, you save a little bit of money uh, for you. So you save a little money, a little bit of money for your future, you save a little bit of money for your fun, the now time, and then you save a yeah. little bit of money for risk. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that uh, it's important that you take that risk. Because, again, that's where I think you want to be happy in what you do. And I think when you find a passion, you know, the money side of it will always come as well. So uh, I wouldn't be so focused on money. I would think more about, you know, what do you really, really enjoy doing? And, uh, and again, that comes through meeting people, experiencing things, meeting successful people. And then again, you'll help your vision and your path, I think, a lot easier and more clear. But sitting in a room trying to think of it, uh, you know, it's going to be difficult to do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, great. Great advice. Thank you. And thank you so much, Paul, for sharing your very inspirational story. Um, I, I personally just loved hearing about your journey. And, you know, it sounds like throughout the entire uh, way, you've been having fun. And it sounds like you're having a lot of fun now. Uh, so it's, it's great that you've been able to find the path that works for you. Um, and congratulations on all the success uh, with Sewingo. For people who want to kind of uh, keep in touch with you or find you on the internet. Where is the best, best place for them to um, follow you? Um, I've got a LinkedIn profile. I think that's probably one of the best ways. And uh, people can always email me, paul at swingo.com. Very simple, yeah. P-A-U-L. Uh, but I really want to thank you, Justin, for having me. And uh, I think it's great what you're doing. I wish that uh, when I was younger, that there were programs like this around to kind of help uh, show me some things that I didn't know uh, and that I could discover. So uh, fantastic job. Thank you so much, Paul. Happy holidays and keep us posted on the puppy. Absolutely. Merry Christmas, Justin. Happy Thank holidays. You. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Asian Tech Leaders. Please share this with your friends and follow us and subscribe to us on your favorite podcasting platform. Looking forward to our next conversation. And until then, take care.